So Bank of America comes out with a regular survey of asset managers, and the results out today show that global growth expectations are at a record low, I think, back to 1994. Um, global corporate profits outlook is as low as it's been since 2008, and stagflation fears are as high as they've been since 2008. So we're in a in a challenging time, uh, you have the war plus higher inflation plus uh, higher interest rates plus lower confidence, which leads to slower growth and uh, increases the possibility of recession, which is really one of the three big fears that are on people's mind right now is uh, recession uh, is one, inflation is two, and policy mistakes is three. So I want to talk about the uh, outlook for the environment and where things are going. And obviously this has been as, um, as tough a time to make money as uh, most of us have ever lived through. Um, you've come off a 10 uh, year period where uh, the central banks have provided a floor in asset values uh, that's going away. And at the same time, you've had uh, fiscal stimulus. that has been uh, very aggressive during that 10 year period, which has created an artificial uh artificially overstimulated economy, which we now have to wean off of. Uh, and that's the real challenge we're faced with today. So I want to jump right into uh, the World Bank came out with a report last Wednesday, and they basically are saying the global economy is facing high inflation, slow growth at the same time, which means even if we avoid a recession, we're still going to be uh, stuck with a period of stagflation that could be with us for for many years unless we take big steps to deal with some of the supply issues that exist out there today. So they were looking at global growth last year of 5.7%. Uh, in December, in January, when they did their report, that global growth at 4.1%, and now we're down from 41 to 2.9% this year, and somewhat flat next year. Um, pretty big drop in the growth projections just in a four-month period, and, and a lot of that has to do with the war. Um, mainly because of the issues around food, energy, and uh, the increase in interest rates. And so a lot of this stems from the war. But one of the big issues is, uh, and I've talked about this a lot the last couple of weeks, is the low and middle income economies and families are the ones being most heavily impacted. Clearly, the wealthy and the family offices are pulling in their uh, their aggressiveness in terms of where they're going because there's been no place really to uh, – avoid the downdraft that we've had. Uh, it's hit basically every asset class and every product that people have been in for some time, and in many cases quite considerably other than energy, really. So we're in a difficult time. Let's take a look at some of the numbers. This is the forecast, and what you see in black is world growth going back to 2000. Um, been pretty steady around this uh, 2 to 3, 2.5 to 3 and change range. Um, but you, what you see in the light blue is the advanced economies and uh, the darker blue is the emerging and developed economies. And it's been a pretty tough slog. And I would say the emerging developing economies would not be seeing the upward drift in uh, in growth expectations if it wasn't for many of the uh, economies that are commodity producers. I think it would be a worse situation. And this really gives you a different sense of how many countries, what percent of countries had their growth outlook revised, either upgraded, unchanged, or downgraded. And clearly you can see from the red that the downgrades have been quite high. 
the areas where you've seen some upgrades is really in uh, the emerging uh, market, developed economy, commodity producers. And you can see the impact of the uh, commodity producers versus the commodity importers in terms of the downgrades is pretty high. I think the advanced economies, the decline there is much of that's around the challenges of Europe and, and the impact of the war on the European economies. One of the interesting things that came out of the World Bank report, though, is that they're projecting that growth for the next decade will be slower than the last decade in each area, whether it's overall in the global economy, whether it's in the advanced economies, whether it's in the emerging economies. And I think this speaks to the weaning off of the stimulus that's been put in both monetary and fiscal. And one of the challenges we're going to have as investors is, uh, shifting to an environment without the central bank puts that have been put in place around the world. That's one of the issues we're dealing with, as you've seen uh, asset valuations get uh, upset pretty aggressively over the last couple months, whether it's the equities, the NASDAQ market, whether it's bonds or whether it's crypto or now uh, are we moving to real estate. We're starting to see this play through and we are going to be looking at a tougher slug as we move forward there. When you have slower growth and then you look at the inflation projections, and this is on the left-hand side, you can see what the OECD had as their inflation projections for January of this year. And then you can see where they're in June. And just looking at Turkey, a threefold increase, Argentina, uh, almost a 50% increase. And in many other nations, you're looking at two to three times the inflation rates uh, just with the expectation changes from December to June. So a pretty significant and uh, violent shift in the uh, outlook for inflation. And I think this really speaks to the role of the war in those uh, numbers. And you're seeing it, whether it's advanced economies or developing economies, you see both are getting hit pretty hard by this. And I think it's because it's food and energy that are the big drivers coming at a time that we're dealing with uh, uh, still working through the supply chain issues and the pandemic issues. <clears throat> And for those uh, nations that were targeting inflation rates, this chart's actually interesting because it goes back to 2018, 19, and 20, all the way through to today. And you can see for the 18, 19, and 20 period, we were struggling to get inflation um, where only 20% or so or less of the economies were at their targeted inflation levels, which is why central banks were pushing so hard and so accommodative. I think what happened with the pandemic when you added exceptional fiscal stimulus on top of the system, you created a, a hyperinflation period that uh, clearly when you add, the, add to that the war, uh, that's created, I think, this uh, excess inflation push that we've seen. Um, and that's really the challenge. So you see a lot of nations well above their targets now after uh, almost a reverse where so many were struggling to get anywhere near their inflation targets. So now that puts central banks and policymakers in a bind of what do you do now? And I think that's one of the big challenges. And some of this is outside the, the central bank's control. Clearly, they don't have much control on energy prices. They can slow down demand or not. But this chart looks at um, what the energy prices were at their highest levels. Uh, you can see 79 on the uh, left three bars, the center bars of 2008 and the right bars of the forecast for this year. And you can really see pronounced movements in natural gas, but even coal is on the upswing from uh, 2008, where you do see uh, 
oil a bit on the decline. So I think we are in one of those awkward transition periods that are going to create um, some excessive inflation for a bit of time, but it's not going to be even throughout the system, and you're starting to see it pull back in certain areas as well. But I think one of the underlying problems that faces the global economy is the debt loads in the emerging market developed economies. And what you're seeing here is a pretty dramatic move up from the uh, time you had the BRICS really take off in the 1990s to early 2000s moving forward. At that same time, emerging market debt was on the rise, too, because we had a very accommodative monetary system that allowed people to take advantage of it. Now the bill is coming due and you're looking at uh, debt to GDP on a total level of uh, approaching 250 percent and more. That's going to put big strains on it when you have debt levels that high and you have a two percent or more increase in interest costs. That puts a lot of strain on these economies at a time that many of them can't afford it. It's different if you're a commodity uh, exporter versus an importer, for example. So the other problem that's come out of the out of the war in Ukraine and is the food insecurity issue. And this is World Bank looking at food insecurity in 21 of up to 200 million people. We think that number's uh, well underestimated because of the problems in the in the Middle East right now. Uh, with food insecurity coming out of the problem in Ukraine and Russia and, and the exports that are being curtailed there. So food's still a big problem, and that's going to weigh on the policies because it puts policymakers in a in a tough spot. Do they do the right thing for the short term or do they right thing, do the right thing for the long term? And when you have people starving, it's hard to do the right thing, look out for the long term. So we have to really step up. It's going to require a, a pretty uh, unusually well-coordinated global effort at a time the global economy is fragmenting. All this has led to uh, lower consumer confidence. And you can look at the drop from October to now and a pretty significant drop in consumer confidence, both in the U.S., uh, the euro area, but also uh, throughout the uh, organization of economically uh, uh, developed nations. So you, you are seeing a pretty significant drop. Consumer confidence then flows into corporate confidence, which slows spending, which will ease some of the inflationary pressures, but it's a question of timing. And when you look at it, the global economy is now being hit with a lot of risk. And while these risks are often uh, with us, a couple of them, geopolitical tensions have been a constant with us for the last 20 or 30 years. Supply chain disruptions have been a big part of us for the last several years. Financial stresses have been with us for over a decade. But food and energy uh, insecurity and stagflation are on the rise, which leads to higher uh, social tensions. We haven't really addressed the climate issues the way we should. And all this is happening with a, a view that we're slowing, having growth slow and a lot more fragmentation of trade, investment, and financial networks. And this is one of the big questions that comes out of uh, where do we go from here and how does this all get resolved? I think the fragmentation issue uh, really falls on the U.S. and China and Europe to determine where they how they want to play coming out of this uh, issue and how are the how are the players going to align? Are we going to have a, a block between the democratic and autocratic nations, or are we going to just look at uh, doing the right thing uh, with the leading nations? And I think that's the big wild card. Too hard to tell right now. Although there are some signs that China's not sure whether they are on the right side of 
of this in supporting Russia and how far did they go. And at the same time, uh, the U.S. and Europe are trying to determine how far do they want to go and what is the determination of a win with the Ukraine uh, situation? Is it uh, uh, pushed back to pre-February uh, 24th, uh, push Russia completely out, or does the uh, Donbass region, region get uh, play in there? I think that's really one of the big issues. We touched on this last week. Um, Adam and I have had some discussions on it since. I think the issue for the Western world is they have to uh, return the Ukraine back to uh, pre-February 24th uh, borders or we're going to have an ongoing problem that uh, won't be resolved anytime soon with the uh, in Europe. I think the uh, one of the big questions is, can uh, the European Union stay together enough to and NATO stay together enough as the social tensions rise inside their own countries and the financial stresses rise with higher inflation? Can they uh, stay together and do the right thing globally or do we uh, how does it get defined? And I think that's going to be the key issue as we move forward. So the World Bank had five recommendations for how to deal with the problems. The first is uh, obviously uh, reduce the harm to people impacted by the war in Ukraine. And that's obviously the Ukrainian people, the Russians as well, who are being damaged by the sanctions. But it's also uh, people in the Middle East, all those that have been displaced. It's uh, I think it's seven million, six million people have left the uh, Ukraine uh, to go to other nations. And you have another uh, seven million that have been forcibly displaced and inside. That's a big issue. How do we deal with that? How do we get that back on track? How do we deal with the spike in oil and food prices? And at a time we're trying to uh, transition to lower carbon uh, sources. And I think one of the issues is um, a rethink of the transition for uh, clean energy and how you balance off fossil fuels with uh, the green energy initiatives, but also how do we deal with food prices and how do we break the barricade in the Black Sea, I think is one of the key issues. I think we have to really look at how we're going to deal with the developing economies debt issues. Um, do we look at how we ease those problems with rising interest rates? Uh, you're going to see greater stresses and the rates are rising at a faster rate in the emerging economies as they are in the developed ones, putting greater strains. As I mentioned last week, Brazil's seen their federal funds rate or their equivalent of their federal funds rate go from 2.7% up to 1475 or up to 14% now um, in a very short period of time. So I think how we help these nations deal with their rising debt problems is going to be a key element. We also have a health crisis that's ongoing and we need to do more to help the less developed nations and, and deal with their health issues as well not only for the current uh, issues with COVID, but also for future pandemics. And then we have to deal with the green energy transition. All this is coming at a time that, you know, confidence is down. Uh, asset valuations have come in quite a bit, whether you're in the public markets or uh, whether you're in crypto or whether you're in bonds or whether you're in private uh, uh, equity markets we are seeing a reset that's going on there that's not inconsiderable at the same time you're having higher inflation. So there's really been no place to hide, and it's going to be very difficult to see strong positive returns in the markets until you get to a stabilization of the inflationary pressures and also better clarity on uh, 
on the food issues and, and uh, food inflation. So I think we're in one of those periods where until interest rates start moving up and inflation starts moving up, we're going to have a, a more challenging time for uh, finding returns in uh, both the public and private markets, as well as in alternatives and crypto and, and the like. I think this is just going to be one of those times where you hunker down and uh, hold your positions, uh, look to upgrade in quality where you can, and really focus on on that and take a longer term view to manage through this. But it's going to be a challenging uh, period as we walk through this. And there's going to be increased pressure on leaders to try and balance off the short term pressures with doing the right thing for the long term. So, Mark, I'm going to stop there and open up for questions, comments. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Questions? I do. Stephen. Hi, it's John Pagley. Good morning. Thank you again. Um, Good question for you. Um, do you think that hedge funds, generally speaking, with their belief, I suppose to promise, to protect on the downside, obviously that depends on the strategy, might be able to deliver? Assuming there's sufficient capacity, assuming the volatility of volatility can be managed. I mean, the answer is yes. Um but anyone can outperform in this environment if they're in the right things, but it's easier said than done. And it's hard to catch those funds at the right time. Um, so, you know, I think, John, you gave a lot of caveats for it, but uh, <laughs> you can make money in this environment if you're in the right, if you're on the right stuff. It's just hard to pick the right stuff and own them in this environment. Yep. And picking the right managers to do it. The other yeah. thing is shorting in this environment is, you know, we're down, you know, on the NASDAQ, 30 some odd percent. You're in a bear market on the S&P. Crypto's down yeah. a lot. Um, yeah. A lot of the easy short money's, uh, you know, been taken out. When you have such policy uncertainty coming, um, whether we do 50, 75 or 25 in the U.S. or whether the ECB does 25s or 50s on their increases, it's, it puts you at a lot of risk yeah. to be out of bounds. So you really have to be quite confident in your positions to to go too far away from where you are right now. So right. the answer is yeah, not easy, John. Stephen, <laughs> uh, this is Tyler Wood. I was just thinking that um, perhaps finally after uh, a uh, cold several winters for the commodity trading advisory world, that this is their final, finally a time to shine where the central bank isn't, you know, being the uh, chief risk manager uh, of the, U.S. economy hedge fund that uh, the commodity trading advisors are now starting to shine because they're no longer kind of backstopping everything. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting time because commodities should do well in their in the areas that are required for the future digitalization electrification, um, but against this backdrop of rising rates and uh, and uh, a dollar that could be. Uh, topping out, it's a question of, uh, you know, how does that play out, uh, as you move forward? So I think there's, I think you can make money in a lot of different areas. Um, I also think it's going to depend very much on your time horizon because I think you're going to need time to be your friend in this environment. And, uh, and I think that's one of the challenges for how you put capital work right now. Uh, you have to be willing to go out with a long enough time horizon that you'll deal with the volatility that's going to be quite high in the short term. But, you know, we're, we're big on, uh, copper and rare earths. Um, 
you just saw one of the companies today cut a deal with Linus where, um, or it might be the Department of Defense is going to deal with Linus in Australia to uh, set up a plant in the U.S. for rare earths to refine more rare earths. So I think where you can see clear needs and a clear match like uh, rare earths or copper that you know for the green evolution revolution are going to be required, I think you can take a longer-term view, but the day-to-day volatility is going to be massive in a lot of those. But, nope. uh, Tyler, nope. you're right. Uh, it looks Commodities, oil and rare earths and copper. Since you, Navarro has just launched its next fund. You're in the metals and minerals, mineral, minerals and metal space. What do you, what do you say? Yeah, I I was actually going to ask Stephen a question kind of in that regard. But Stephen, I remember you guys had exposure a little while ago. I think it was to Barrick Gold. It was a gold company uh, specifically. And, you know, it's just like, it feels like there's nowhere to hide right now. And I don't really see, Asset prices really rebounding until the Fed is done, you know, raising rates, which is really a, a product of inflation because that's their mandate is inflation and maximum employment. And so, you know, is gold a place to hide and, and, and why hasn't it moved? Right. We've had so much money printing over the past 15 years at a level that's just unheard of. And, you know, it, a part of me says, is this just one of these trades that no one's talking about that that could really kick off. And, and, you know, in hindsight, it could be a, a really incredible performing asset class because even in relation to most other commodities, it, it hasn't really done what, we, what I would have expected in this kind of environment. So do you think it is still a safe haven asset that people will move to during times of distress? And is it something that you guys are still actively watching? We're actively watching. We don't own it, own it right now. We have owned it in the past. I think one of the challenges, I and mean, gold's done well, I and mean, just Put it in perspective. I think if you go back to 2000, gold might have outperformed the S&P during that time um, for for that 22 year period. So it's if not, it's right around it. Um, right. So it has performed well over time. I think our time horizons are kind of condensed. I think one of the challenges that gold's had right now is has been that crypto has diverted some of the buyers from that would naturally be buyers of gold to crypto. So you actually have had less demand for both. Um, I think that's one of the, one of the uh, challenges that we've, we've seen with the gold area. Um, I think gold can is, can play a role in the portfolios like a lot of things. It's just a question of how much you're time trying to time it and how big a position you're going to put in it is really the challenge for people. And, I think in this environment, uh, we're in a less clear area and central bank tightening in theory should not be great for gold while inflation should be good for gold. So you have a lot of contravailing forces right now. Right. No, I totally understand. Um, yeah, Mark, to your, to your earlier point though, I think, you know, we are seeing clients really move towards more commodities in general and, and, you know, actively kind of asking about it just because of, you know, it has been one of the better performing asset classes and, I think having some kind of exposure there with, you know, via credit with some kind of equity upside is, is strategic and helpful. But, you know, I've just been somewhat surprised that, you know, to your points, even gold hasn't really moved, but maybe it, it is this, this confluence of forces kind of keeping it down in a way. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. One last thing, Stephen, do you, do you see in any scenario, you know, social unrest associated with the fact that you've got, you know, this inflation where half of that inflation is really food and energy prices, which for people who, you know, are in the working class or emerging economies, that represents such a significant portion of their disposable income. You know, does that eventually lead to some kind of social unrest? 
I I wouldn't want to be a, a leader of a lot of emerging economies right now. Um, there's you can't. I don't know how they win um, for a lot of those places. Uh, their short-term problems are big. Their long-term problems are bigger, I think, for a lot of them. And um, where they, how they play the U.S. and uh, uh, China, how do they leverage those two, and how do they uh, work with uh, those two countries that are trying to really uh, get a, a stake in their in their. Uh, Share of mind, I think, is going to be a big issue, and so it's a, it's tough, Joe. I do think there's going to be a lot of social issues that we're facing, not just in the emerging economies, but also in the developed ones. I think the uh, I think governments are policies are uh, I think the governments parties are pushing people uh, in different directions. That's actually adding to the divisiveness now that has to stop. Um, I think it's going to create some big issues and. I think you could see it coming up in the states, even in the in the midterms. So, big right, big you. concern. I think we're we're due to have another political panel, even though I hate politics, so to speak. But we'll uh, we should try to uh, interpret what has happened in these in the uh, recent elections. Yeah, I know, Mark. We're going to do something with uh, in the fall before the before the elections with. Uh, I think we're gonna do something with Frank Lunds. So, uh, you mean you mean uh, in, in Michigan? No, uh, ARS is gonna have a oh, uh, okay uh, thing with Frank Lunds before the midterms to uh, get his take on it, which would be quite interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mark, I've got a quick question uh, for uh, both Stephen and and Joe. Um, in terms of gold, is silver and platinum are they are they are they moving in the same direction? Are they? Is there as much liquidity in there as well? Uh, I don't think there's as much liquidity. Um, silver and platinum, because their industry uses have been uh, in favor than out of favor. It just depends. They kind of come and go with commodities in general. Um, I don't. I haven't followed them as closely uh, this go around. We we were big investors in silver. In the uh, China industrialization period in 2000 to 2010, we haven't been in, been big silver investors or um, platinum or palladium investors since. I haven't been following them, Adam, to be honest, but I know silver has just always behaved almost like a a higher beta gold in a way, right? And, it, right. and, and, and even though it has those industrial uses, it always kind of has me scratching my head because, you know, there's more, you know, places to put it and utilize it in an economy and yet um, – the price just hasn't, you know, it's just always moved like a, a more aggressive gold. So what I, what I could do, I my family office was put together the buyout of Arcelor's uh, trading desk, and we we did that with uh, Pegasus and Kelso, and now it's owned by Carlisle. But I could bring Traxxas in. They do everything but oil and gas. We could do a commodities event just to the yeah, I, I could, that would be I, cool. I find that commodities and shipping, because shippers, you know, across what, you know, dry and wet really do know where the, you know, we talked about the congestion and on the West Coast, <laughs> although it was brought up in Ohio that um, by the same person who said, I don't want to own any real estate on the coast of Florida, that all those ports are going to be underwater at some point, And we have to restructure our infrastructure uh, given climate change. 
but but we could you know commodity is an interesting way to see the world yeah there's a there's a, a important uh, note in the OECD report that they put out last week that shows the uh the impact of uh the green energy the green movement on commodities and uh, the use of them. We've shown that chart in some recent calls, but I think next week I'll be able to show that chart, Mark. It's pretty impressive what the, uh, how much more, uh, of the key commodities. The economic machine works in 30 minutes. That's Mike Daly. I'm meeting him. Love you, Mike. So, great video by Ray Dalio, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the economic engine works. Yeah, I, have a, uh, I have a question about, uh, green economy and just, you know, as we look at energy efficiency in the future, as we try to scale up renewable energy, what about the merging of machine learning with energy systems to really improve efficiency as we move away from this massive grid to potential smaller grids in communities and individual homes where managing energy flow needs to be automated better to increase efficiency. It just seems like what is that future space that we're moving to where there are opportunities to make an impact? I don't know what you think of that or if that's out of line or what, but I'm just trying to think where we're going to be in 10 years when it comes to our green energy infrastructure. Yeah, the electrification is one of one of the big themes, and it's also one of the harder ones to invest because uh, – because the governments are not consistent in how they are allocating monies towards these projects. So it really comes down to, you know, getting good public-private partnerships to do this right. Um, but I think you're dead on, Joel, that uh, we we have to find the way to uh, store and transmit energy at different for peak uses much better than we can in our grid system in the U.S. is so antiquated that uh, it's actually, I think, three primary grid systems uh, that don't really communicate well with each other already. And then you're going to have to get that down into microsystems that inside cities that transfer uh, power to from different objects at different times. I think it's going to be that's where capital has to be put to to get this done right, um, because we have to stop the leakage. Um, and you have to figure out a way to get wind power from the northeast to uh, other areas of the country, and you have to get sun power from the southwest to other areas of the country in a in a in an efficient way. And our grid system isn't set up anywhere near for that right now. And I, if I can, I think also you know a lot of the the metals that are needed in order to help build out that infrastructure and the batteries and all of that techno- technological infrastructure that we need to develop are in structural deficit. Right. And we can't get that stuff out of the ground fast enough. And so I think that's why you're seeing these commodity prices absolutely rip over the past couple of years. Right. And so I think it'll probably take longer than we we actually expect. Can I just, you know, we just came back from Ohio and all this doom and gloom and it's real. And we have problems we have to solve, exacerbating other social issues. But I got to say, I'm. Okay, I'm from Ohio, so I got talking my book a little bit on my roots. But Ohio's got a different set of problems. They need to find construction workers to fill all these jobs. They need to figure out how to upskill, reskill. They put things in motion that are now playing out. And this is before Intel hits. 
And I just thought, you know, we had that in, implications of Intel panel uh, or breakout session, Janan, and, and yeah, we need to go to the research triangle down to your part of the world. <laughs> but uh, maybe you could just give your reflection uh, on that yeah. as, as I showed you pictures of, uh, of Ohio. Okay. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. I mean, like one of the things that challenges of the grid and going to microgrids and having the green energy is that we do have to have a way of saying it. If you can't get paid for it, no one's going to want to contribute to the grid. But um, absolutely, the electric vehicles, everything is going to be required more. The introduction just of mobile devices, smartphones, added a 30% additional demand on the power grid, just charging our devices all over the U.S. Um, when we look at the impact of Intel, one of the things we were talking about is all the other companies that go with it. There's projected in the next 10 years to be a trillion connected devices, things the Internet of Things, and that's all going to require additional power, energy, electric, electricity, if you will, additional communication. Our wireless communication infrastructure is also not ready yet to handle it. So I tend to think that investment in how technology applies to the infrastructure, particularly everything will need power, so the electric power grid and being able to onboard the solar wind, et cetera, and battery storage. Storage is going to be a big thing. Um, but also the platforms to handle it. Someone mentioned AI. But just being able to do financial settlements for energy, it's not yet here. It's mostly manual in the electric power grid, surprisingly. But, but could you talk about more Ohio and what your impressions were? But that's important, too. I didn't want to take anything away from I mean, that. I think also, yeah, Ohio is making some of these key investments. They have the autonomous corridor. So they are already, I think, one of the leading states um, in our nation on autonomous vehicles and making the smart corridors that can handle the data. Um, for example, a single Tesla daily has over a terabyte of data from driving on average. So kind of interesting uh, there. But uh, Ohio seems to be adding a lot of the um, uh, educational support for equipping people for the jobs of the future, not just the jobs of today. Um, I had the impression that the state's commitment to funding innovation is pretty large and the entrepreneurial community and the investment community to back early stage has been growing pretty steadily. It's impressive. It is. Even this, we're on, these pictures are Buckeye Lake and talk about, we took it in the gut in the eighties and nineties. And like, this was a, this was a place where it was booming in the fifties and it's coming back. Um, that's my mom and dad, by the way, on the right. So, Safa from, I'll go quick. Brittany in from Chicago, a motley crew here. I missed some of these pictures and then top of Columbus. Yeah. My, see, my, my takeaway was just, you know, you take John Havens, who's, you know, third gen family office. He's starting us a company that's uh, not starting. He's, building a company that needs plumbers and HVAC workers. These are $100,000 jobs. And if you have anything in the services industry and in central Ohio, you better be booking it now. It is a dearth. So it's really an opportunity, Joel. You know, come back to your Columbus roots. You should maybe 
go where the jobs are with your uh, with your Delta project. They did, they did say one year one year wait list for contractors. It's the same here in Michigan too. I mean, the, I just think that tradesmen are aging, their bodies are beat up, and there aren't there aren't enough people filling those spaces. So it's it's a big challenge we're facing. But it's also it's an opportunity if we could actually get the reentry right, right? There's a pretty vibrant, uh, I don't know if it's a debate, going on related to the efficacy of um, what we all know to be higher education. Um, and it would be great to maybe get uh, Denise Bruder's take on some of this. But the thrust of it, in short, is that, um, uh, to Joel's point, we don't have enough training for people that want to go into trades. Uh, there's a very good living to be had for plumbers, industrial mechanics, HVAC technicians, and not everybody is a good fit for college. Um, and and I think that probably needs to be considered in in the kind of the new dialogue. Great. Other questions? Mark, uh, Andrew Voss, Hi, Andrew. one of your colleagues from uh, the Big Red in Granville, Ohio. Absolutely. Uh, Stephen, um, thank you as, as usual for your comments and time. Um, and perhaps I missed it, but do you have any viewpoint on food production as an asset class, uh, agriculture, aquaculture, things of that nature going forward? A lot of the things I've been reading recently, big money names in the U.S. that are investing in farmland. Um, and with what we're seeing with supply chain issues, inflation, food prices, do you see value plays there? I'm not very good on the farmland uh, for as an asset class, so I, I would defer to somebody else for that question. Um, I think we have a – we definitely have a – have food issues all over that aren't getting resolved anytime soon. And, uh, I don't know how we, I don't know how we deal with it, to be honest with you. So I would defer to the people who are more expert on food and agriculture. We are talking about, oh, sorry. Hydroponics. We're seeing a lot of investment in hydroponics technology and the lighting for plants, as well as the structures that are used to create them. I mean, not just for cannabis, but in production. So we're seeing a lot of investment there. Yeah, Andrew, is the question about uh, hydroponics? Is the question about alternatives to traditional farming or regenerative farming? You know, related to crop efficiency outdoors or both? Or I'd say all of that. Um, I'm currently involved with a, an entity that's in the aquaculture space. Um, he's come up with kind of the reinvented mousetrap of shrimp farming. And so um, we're seeing a lot of interest. I'm, I'm kind of a I'm an investor, but I'm also uh, an advisor to him. And I'm just trying to collect data uh, on his behalf to see um, what the consensus is out in the investment community. So I would say everything that you just mentioned. Is, and this, if, AI, is this AI enabled shrimp farming by any chance? Um, there's technology behind it that I can't talk about. Right yeah. now, but I'm happy I've, to talk offline with it. But yeah, there's a couple models that I've seen out there, so happy to talk if you want offline. Yeah. So, I, 
just Pete Thurlow. I, I work with a lot of family offices, and I'm uh, a patent guy. I'm a patent attorney. We see a lot of investment in vertical farming, both in the United States, Israel, Europe, and quite frankly, lots of money coming in from China on that particular issue. So that's one area that, as I work with family offices, is growing, the, the controlled agricultural technology uh, with all the lighting and seed technology that we're seeing. So uh, from our perspective, that's definitely an area of growth in the future. Well, we met with 80 acres. Anyone familiar with 80 acres? Mm-hmm. They came to our, uh, they're part of our Cincinnati disruptor panel. They're one of the largest, but you know, they were backed by General Atlantic. You know, it comes down to, to the cost curve and how we get there. And, you know, and another is regenerative ag. Actually, Joe, you know, with uh, Sheridex, what, what you're doing to the soil and with a, if you could find the triple wins, where you could, you know, cause some argue that the uh, ver- vertical ag is not impactful, but yet obviously it helps with transport. So it's different angles on it. I would just say that there needs to be a transition. I mean, we subsidize conventional ag with billions of dollars. I don't know the numbers, but right. the fact that we're subsidizing this conventional ag that is sucking all the nutrients out of the soil. Um, needs to be addressed, and that's why there's such a movement toward organic and really regenerative, but the percentage of regenerative and organic farms in the world is under 10%. It's very minuscule. So it's all about bringing the soil back to health. Then you're going to be capturing carbon again, and you're going to start to address some of the environmental issues. So a lot of this has to do with circular economies as well. Yep. It's a big part of the future. But my sense is that it's it's yes and. We need regenerative yeah. to move forward, and we need to be building aero farms and shipping container container farms in our cities, and we have to address food insecurity that way. And I find this an interesting topic because politically it's red and blue. We're all in this together. You know, right. people are going to come together on food security, or they at least they should. And we can have farmers talking to farmers of all different stripes in order to create a future where yep. we frankly have healthy food to eat and a healthy environment that it's coming from. It's, actually, it's also tied to, uh, to water security, too. So, uh, Absolutely. You know, we've, uh, we've been marketing an agribusiness um, out in Colorado where they've got pretty decent water rights, but that's you know the long-term paranoia. So you're seeing... You know, maybe prices for farmland, you know, nominally kind of going up just because of uh, inflated commodity prices. But if if you don't have good water, it's a it's a real problem. Yeah, and then we're also the other end of that spectrum. You have food waste. Right? Yeah. So. yeah. We're seeing a lot of investment also in biochar, which addresses both the regeneration of the soil and the carbon sequestration. So biochar, which can use converting food waste or any sort of waste um, into this sort of charcoalized uh, uh, material that can be used for landscaping to require less water um, for landscape areas, golf courses, etc. But from a you know, soil regeneration, a soil additive, biochar is another area to investigate. If anyone's interested, we have some data on biochar. Well, Turner has promised to do a circular economy 
Uh, he's been promising for 15 months, but he says he's really going to do it this time. So, uh, manana, manana, procrastinating, you know. But, uh, compare notes with Janan. Uh, I'll help with that too. If I can add one more point, Mark, just on the water, um, especially yeah, yeah. in California, you know, I was in the Navy and, and was in the military. So, um, desalination technology across the West Coast in California, you know, it just needs more investment in, in that because there's plenty of water there. It's just salt water. And all the concerns, there are some being done in, in Southern California, but not enough. And there's lots and lots of uh, discussion, but it's a very capital-intensive uh, area. But, you know, it took me 14 days to get from uh, Taiwan back to California. So we need water. And there's, there's, the technology is out there. It's just kind of the capital-intensive projects that we're hoping more and more crop up on. You know, we say that there's never a water crisis in the Middle East. Um, so, um, you know, the technology is there and there's lots more discussion about, uh, you know, investing in that. One, one more thing about technology and farming. I mean, the biggest issue with regenerative organic for that matter is weeding. So if you look at ways to control weeding, uh, lasers are being used now. You know, there's simple ways to address weeds, but Laser technology to take weeds out before they germinate is a big part of the future of organic farming, too. So arrow farming, bowery farming, some big projects in uh, New York State with some uh, big hitters involved. But yeah, it's an exciting area. Well, if you've ever wanted to go to our YouTube channel and you look search for ag tech, you'll see some of the history and we you know, it's, it's time. A lot of these things, I feel like we know that like the waste someone brought up, you know, 30 to 50% is wasted. We got, you know, and there are solutions. And, uh, and, and, and Joel, it's interesting. You, I've, I've got you focused on, in my mind, on this reentry and, and preventative, uh, yet you're obviously focused on other things too. So you can join, join the, you know, Join ag tech. Yeah, been studying that for about fifteen years. Great. You know, John Dennison, ex Kleiner Perkins, is actually he'll be in Michigan um, for the innovate for the Ann Arbor part. But we should compare notes uh, on that side. Other thoughts? It's kind of funny. I've been talking about this for four years. Um, and it's nice to hear people talking about uh, this now. Um, I just felt like an alien talking from the future. Um, so thanks, everybody, talking about uh, regenerative farming, uh, hydroponics, and biochar. Uh, biomimicry as well. I think that's something we should look toward, you know, looking at natural systems as ways to emulate systems we create in our society. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's an exciting times if you're a solutionary. Yeah, someone used the word solutionize. Uh, well, you know, with our platform is your platform, so all these events, the way where we want to go deeper, um, you know, you could have an ag tech event next month, easily. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, you know. I'm going to focus on on trashing the planet and then we'll start dealing with, you know, the other 50 billion tons of atmospheric carbon. Um, 
that we can't see is out of sight, out of mind. But, um, you know, it was funny going after the investment world, uh, talking about carbon capture, um, using, uh, natural sources, um, and, and our solution there. Um, and the lack of vision, I think, for a lot of the institutional investors, but from the, you know, once dealing with trash, and truly addressing the elimination of trash and recycling everything um, rather than the failed marketing campaign of, you know, 5% of the plastics that we've created being recycled, actually addressing all of the circular economy of all of our trash and recycling all of it at the nano level. Then we start, you know, moving the needle on the 8.6% of the world economy being actually circular um, and moving the needle up. And then we can start addressing the, you know, 200 years of atmospheric waste. Well, we had a climate tech panel in Ohio, some may remember. But, you know, Turner, we, we, we've, been, we, we've been talking about waste to energy. I mean, a lot of us for, you know, not just four years. This is yeah. on yeah, for yeah, a while. Well, the problem with waste to energy is that it's just all you're doing is burning it and creating a ton of emissions. So there's, yeah, there's yeah. Really, so, 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 so basically, I mean, you've got the traditional waste energy, which was the wheel of Brader and Covanta. Yeah. Uh, it's really more like waste okay. to value now. Waste yeah, yeah. So, so everyone's been, been on the sideline looking at uh, the, the, the bellwether deal out there is Fulcrum Bioenergy, uh, which is mm-hmm. out of California. And they just commissioned uh, their plant in the last week or two. So that's uh, <clears throat> everyone's looking at how how that's going to run. And you know, I mean, the biggest issue with respect to uh, to getting like uh, refined fuels and other uh, you know uh, high value um, you know stocks out of garbage has always been contamination and technology issues and yeah. and a whole whole host of things. But uh, everyone. It thinks that fulcrum is going to work, and if it does work, that that kind of de-risks the whole sector. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd just like to add that uh, Tyler, thanks, and Turner, nice to see you. Yeah, I'd just like to add that you know you guys have tapped into a pretty good network here at 361. We've been having these conversations about uh, ag tech and uh, its impact on climate for for quite a while. So it's great to see other people come into the ecosystem with that uh, serious of focus on those areas. Um, you know, just, you know, we, we have a deal, as Mark knows, called natural fiber welding. And natural fiber welding can essentially, you know, reformat natural fibers the way synthetic fibers are, which in essence replaces plastic plants. It also has a closed loop recycling component to it. And we're going to be, you know, coming out with that, uh, growth stage investment here very shortly, but, uh, really encouraged by all the comments here and the energy that uh, surrounds particularly ag tech, its impact on climate and its, you know, potential to reduce, uh, you know, reduce current, you know, practices and its impact on climate. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's well, great. And not only that, you, you've, you've raised, you know, you've been taking these companies up, up the, through the stages, um, which, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see where, it, where, where it was. And, but, but a lot of, you know, the, is that coastal VC mentality? They just aren't seeing some of the of these breakthroughs that are in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah uh, that you're, sure. you're working on. And I think this is a good time for a rethink, right? This whole reset and venture. Yep. 
I did a, a speak for the Wall Street Green Summit, and I just said, look, and this was, you know, before the uh, the um, Ukraine situation. And I was like, look, we're all going to be hitting a wall. And eventually, our you know, these high-density biofactories and these hydroponic systems are going to be supporting life on the planet. Um, because, you know, if we're going to be shifting to these, shifting from a hydrocarbon-based economy to a biocarbon-based economy, we can't do it with monocropping millions of acres. Um, we have to be way more efficient in our use of land. And um, this ethanol situation with with farming c- corn and soy is is uh, is is a slow moving catastrophe, um, and we have to think differently on our monocropping goals. Yeah, so we've been tracking, and you, and you all have access to this no-name part of our deal pipeline. You can see, ag, you know, what ag tech, and if you, if you don't know the name, that you, you, for FINRA purposes, you can come to me mm-hmm. and sometimes share it from a vetting perspective, um, not a marketing perspective under certain auspices, mm-hmm. and, and at least get the ag tech community connected to to capital and that's whole you know a lot of we'll do part of that the next summit is in the fall in michigan but we can do anything in the interim cool thanks mark yeah mark i you know i think you know when you talk about michigan and and these issues it gets back to you know the commercialization of science tech and deep tech which has very different challenges than the typical playbook in silicon valley and uh so you know i think we can incorporate a lot of these discussions into that summit. Although, you know, it's interesting, Tyler, you brought up to the cyber, sorry, the crypt, the crypto crowd, you know, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an, there's a, a countervailing impact they're having. Uh, yeah. Well, three and a half trees for any, for every NFT, they have to plant three and a half trees. And that's just for making one, not for the sale of every single one of them. You know, and so there's a horrendous carbon footprint uh, to that. And uh, if they really want to kind of be the future, I think that they have to kind of rethink what future that is. Uh, not, not. I have nothing against the artists. You know, um, I love the fact that artists are having access to to funding. But if I took a screenshot of someone's art and created an NFT out of it. Um, you know, uh, that's not my art. Well, I think everyone knows my position on this. Yeah. Uh, any other comments, questions? Yeah, Mark, one, one, one last, uh, just a little fun fact that, um, as we were talking about water, um, Israel actually recycles 86% of its water. I don't know if I don't know if that's uh known among Star Group and water desalinization and, and, and technology and, and water desalination has okay. really advanced significantly. And because they had to, and aquaculture, right? Uh I've been tracking hydroponics, very difficult to do so, some of that with, with aquaculture. I mean I probably have videos of watching these watch track being sent out to farms. 10 years ago, but it is coming. And Israelis have some of the leading technologies there again. Yeah. That's, 
I'm excited to get over to Israel and get kicked off with this Israel deep dive begins for those who didn't know. Yeah, that's a hub of technology over there. It's very strong. Yeah, we do a lot of work in Israel and I agree it's a very innovative country, you know. Startup Nation is a great book if anyone's interested. And and Peter, we're finally gonna see you in person in uh in uh, uh lunch on Thursday. So yeah, exactly. I look but, forward to it. Yeah, very, very interesting discussions. Thank you all. We, we have some really interesting, a lot of new people coming to lunch on Thursday. Um, uh, Peter Borsch is and his son. Um, he's been fo- focused on some of these issues. Um, a lot of new people. Joe, Joe Chan's always good for bringing one or two new people. Uh, I may, I may be there as well, Mark. Okay, great. New York on Thursday. Yeah, Mark, I'll tell you more on Thursday. I have uh, meetings with DARPA on um, on Friday about a lot of investments, innovation, and obviously their focus is, is to have U.S. government invest in technologies, not China, and they're obviously 10 cents throwing a lot of money around, not just in military area, but other areas as well. So, so uh, we're trying to bridge the gap, so maybe we can do something with them in the future, you know. So... That and particularly on, on, you know, one issue of, of alarm is quantum computing. Right. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. As it relates to cybersecurity. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's the. Yeah. Yep. I'll tell you more. I've done work at the House, Senate, Patent Office, and many others. It's it's a major issue from yep. uh, encryption technology. You know, and and Olga, our, our common friend was involved in a company doing that. And when I visited DARPA, that was a major focus of them too. So, so yeah, it's, it's a major, major issue for national security and China and Russia and many others are very active in it. And Israel is really uh, a great com- uh, country to work with on that because they're very active as well for obvious national security purposes. And a lot of, and a lot of their scientists are, are Russians in Israel. I mean, they have a lot of, they have a second language. Well, know? they have a lot of new citizens in the <laughs> last few months. Yes. Uh, I, I, we got to get you back, your people back on here, Adam. To maybe it's next Wednesday. You can. I'll, uh, I'll see if we can do that on Wednesday. What what time Wednesday is good? Um, we have the ten thirty, so like eleven fifteen. Okay. Uh, or eleven eleven even eleven eleven o'clock. Curious, you know, I saw that in Turkey, uh, in Dubai, of course. Yeah, in Dubai, Russian, yeah. The Russian diaspora, which is a whole different. The Dubai and Turkey, or UAE and Turkey being different. But and in Israel, you know, the Israelis talk about, well, the U.S., you left us alone with, the, with Syria, and the, and the Russians were the only ones we could work with. And... uh but then they finally stepped up and had, you know, so I don't, I don't know exactly where they, I haven't tracked it as closely, but they were on the sidelines for a while. Yeah, that, that, that Russian-Israeli relationship is a, is a tense one. Complex. And, but what about, you know, this reading that, you know, it's just a matter of weeks now before, before the Russians take uh, parts, you know, take more of the East and solidify their position. Is, is that are, you, are we hearing that as the likely scenario? 
yeah, I'm that that's what I'm hearing, but it's also, you know, it's very fluid. A lot of it is subject to, of course, the um the material that we supply that the West supplies to to the Ukrainians. The ammunition, the long range um artillery, that in particular is very important. The long range artillery. And we're just not coming through. Yeah. The Ukrainians certainly well, have have the passion I, I, I asked, lives. I asked Hamlet if he would come on video and I don't know if, you know, obviously the war is played on different levels. Um, maybe Hamlet, you want to share what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to uh, include you on a newsletter I've been doing uh, weekly, but um, I think you guys touched on it. I think uh, Putin is probably in the next couple of weeks, my guess is you're going to. Oh, we lost you there. I think your Bluetooth went to a different device. Yeah, Jake, can you guys hear me now? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Look, I think, um, I think Putin is probably a couple of weeks away, uh, from holding full elections, um, or referendums in, in the three provinces that he's squatting on right now. And then basically turning around and declaring those either protectorates of Russia or, or, or annexed to Russia or whatever. The implication there, those, if you guys recall, when Biden finally decided to send in longer range rockets, Putin was basically uh, pretty clear saying if any of these rockets touch uh, Russian soil, that's going to be significant escalation. Um, well, if he claims that the, uh, the provinces that he's stealing from Ukraine are now Russian soil, that potentially limits um, uh, the use of those uh, of those rockets uh, to supplant um, Putin. What I think guarantees at that point is guarantees Putin having the upper hand to uh, command or demand uh, some sort of a negotiated deal where he gets to keep the land bridge to Crimea. Uh, the significance there, obviously, is uh, I think anywhere from 40 to 50 to 60 percent of Ukraine's industrial complex, primarily their energy production, producing capabilities, are going to be in those lands. So that cripples Ukraine. It gives Putin time to reload, rearm, and then eventually potentially march on to uh, Moldova, Odessa, and continue his expansion. So not a good scenario. And the only way to stop it, Hamlet, is really to provide provide the ammunition, provide the weapons to him. Well, the issue there, though, is if, if Putin comes up, comes over and says, well, now I own this territory, um, U- Ukraine cannot march on um, on those three provinces and push Russia out because they're pretty well embedded now. Uh, it's going to require air support. It's going to require artillery. It's going to require longer range rockets, things that we're hesitantly trying to support or give Ukraine right now. But if Putin comes out and says, I now own this territory, um, Go back to what I said earlier. Not a single rocket should land on my territory. If not, that's going to be escalation. That's basically Putin bluffing because he knows that Biden and the rest of the Western leaders do not want to risk an escalation of conflict. So everyone has been falsely for the last three, four months making fun of Putin, calling him a loser and whatever the hell. He's about to get exactly what he wanted when he first invaded Ukraine three, three months ago, which was control of the South and Southeast, a broken remaining Ukraine, a weakened Zelensky, and a step-up control over energy markets in Eastern Europe. Just a question on that. Are you surprised they didn't take uh, Kiev? And then secondly, where are we? I saw some stories on uh, the gas supply from Russia to 
Europe and Europe shopping supplies. Did that ever get finalized, or is there a few holdouts on that? Or not was, certain. Yeah, yeah, not certain on the second piece. The Kiev piece, I think. Um, well, it's it's obvious Putin got a lot of lot of lot of bad intel um, from his from his underlings, but loosely speaking, um, I, I think the strategy was, hey boss, let's go ahead and try to take Kiev. I think we can if we come in from the north, we can blitzkrieg these guys, we can decapitate uh, the, uh, the the head of state, uh, and then basically fall back and take over the lands we want to take over. That was, I think, the strategy from the beginning. Um, I think it it has cost him a a lot more. In, uh, in, in, in treasure and in weaponry than he initially anticipated, but he's still going to get what he wanted. Um, he doesn't have the capability to control all of Ukraine. He knows that. What he wants to do is he wants to break Ukraine so it's worthless. And that's what he's right. thinking he's out to do right now. Yeah. The gas supply issue is big because obviously that's his only source of income and many, many companies and others have moved out of, uh, Russia from friends yeah. inside. It's really crippling their their economy. So, um, but obviously, Europeans need the gas. So it's it's a challenging issue. Yeah, I mean, like, like or, or not, one of the things that I think Trump said prophetically in 2018 was Europe was playing right into Putin's hand. He was right. basically getting them hooked on natural gas and energy coming from uh, from Russia. And right now, they're like, well, if this doesn't work out, now what do we do? So, yeah, great point. Yeah. yeah. And look, there's there's other there's two other key geopolitical issues out there that no one's talking about. One is a, uh, a looming uh, nuclear deal with Iran, and if that goes through as it stands, what does how, what does Israel and what does the House Assad do? Uh, because neither one of them want Iran to go nuclear. And then uh, kind of waiting in the wings and judging how the world deals with all this stuff is is G and trying to figure out what he's going to do with Taiwan and Nepal. He's got his party Congress coming up. At the end of October, early November, where he's going to be anointed uh, the uh, the the Emperor of China or whatever title, title they're going to give him, so he's trying to make his own horse trading deals internally with his opposition uh, parties to make sure that he has power. Um, does he then try to project into Taiwan, or does he uh, try to go with a more elegant, slower takeover like he did with Hong Kong? So it's going to be a hot, interesting summer, not including what's going to happen here domestically. Well, Hamlet, I think with Iran, it's going to also depend on whether they can keep their engineers alive. If they're what? Keep their engineers alive. <laughs> That's, yeah, I mean, you've had, in the last six months, you've had a handful of nuclear scientists, engineers um, uh, die, flat out. You had a guy, I think you had a head of one of their weapons manufacturing uh, programs uh, died of food poisoning about two weeks ago. So purely my conjecture and my guess I think that is uh, potentially Israel and the House of Assad saying, listen, if you guys get the nuclear deal, we're going to take our actions into our own hands. Hmm. Purely my guess. Yeah, on the Taiwan side, obviously Taiwan Semiconductor Company, as they call it, the shield, and, and any any war that goes on, any effects on the world economy would be significant. And, yeah. and the Biden is, is no longer following that so-called uh, – Policy of ambiguity is basically stating that we would support them and defend them. Yeah. You know what reality we can do that with everything going on in Ukraine is, is quite the challenge, but you know, um, it's, it's, uh, we live in interesting times, as I say. Like it's a, this, to, to me, to me, geopolitics is, is, is a, is a really big game of no limit, no limit all in poker. Um, and Putin at this point thinks that everybody else on the table has got weak hands. 
Um, he knows his hand isn't all that well, and so does she. And at this point, they're 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 willing to to kind of push all in and bluff us off the pot, knowing that we're not willing to to to, to make certain calls and certain risks. Um, with uh, with Taiwan, um, Biden has been a little more uh, assertive on defense there, but it seems like every time he says something, somebody in the White House comes back and walks that statement back. Yeah, exactly. um, but Xi and Putin aren't home stupid. I mean, they know the foreign policy team around Biden is for the most part the same foreign policy team that was around Obama and how many red lines were there that uh, that weren't defended under Obama. So I think they're willing to push this envelope until until some until those there's some sort of pushback and they're making the bet that there won't be. That's right. It, it has to be pushed back. The bluff has to be called. Yeah. And it has to happen. But yeah. he's he's drawing on okay, yeah, he's drawing on the gas income from Germany and others and energy prices are up so everybody can sell energy it's, it's huge profits. But it, this it's taken a toll, uh, and I don't know what the daily cost is. So there has to be some this backdoor banking from China. Yeah. Oh no. What, I mean, China, China's China's going to float this as long as they can. I mean, their their goal their goal I think right now is you're seeing the formation of a second block, um, and, and everyone kind of forgot what 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 the 80s were like. But you had two completely different trading blocks, political blocks, socioeconomic blocks. We're going back to that right now, and China wants to lead that effort. Um, and they're looking at, at at Russia as kind of their gas station of the north that's going to fuel the minerals and the energy and the resources they need to, to build out that block. And what you're seeing right now is the opening stages of that, and people kind of dismiss it because they look at it as a, as a quarterly or election cycle decision. Like this isn't – China's China's making a long-term – uh, multi-decade bet right now. They've done the math. There's 700 and, I'm sure there's 350, 330 million people in the U.S. There's 700 million people in Western Europe. That's a billion people. If you look at the AUKUS block in kind of Southeast Asia and Australia and, and South Korea and Japan, kind of the friendly Western line, uh, East Asia, that's another three, 400 million people. That's 1.4 billion people. Take India's 1.4 billion people off the table. There's still 5 billion people in the world. The emerging middle class isn't going to come from the West. The emerging middle class is going to come from Africa, Latin America, Middle East, Southeast Europe. I'm sorry, uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. China's making the bet is that that they want to control that 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 trend, and they want to marginalize and weaken the West and become the trading block. And what you're seeing right now, I think, is the opening stages of that effort. And this isn't a, a six month, one year strategy. This is a a decades long strategy. Back to Europe for a while. I mean, isn't it nuclear energy? Why isn't that the obvious solution for Europe in order to get off the gas dependency from Russia? I mean, they're shutting down their nuclear plants. Yeah, hundred percent. But it's pure principle. The Greens in in Europe don't want don't want to open the door to nuclear. Same thing as here. I mean, if if you look at the most efficient uh, source of of large scale energies, it's nuclear. I know, Uh, but the simple trade off is then now you have exactly what you have. You're being held. You held to um you held um hostage to Russia. Yeah. I mean, is is this the their preferred alternative to having? And it's not even clean energy. It's, it's I mean, nuclear, unlike coal or petrochemicals, it's concentrated waste um, material that just needs to be disposed of appropriately. Right. I mean, I, I haven't figured it out, but what do I know? Yeah, <clears throat> obviously Fukushima and all the other nuclear uh, incidents did not help that that argument because people fear it you know so there is new nuclear technology bill gates and others are working on that's exciting and not as very little waste associated with it but it's still 
in the public sides, it's very, it is very capital intensive, but it's also, it's a, you know, fear, you know, people fear it. So. Yep. Very true. Well, a lot of, uh, dust up in here. Thanks to everyone for. Yep. Thank you, Mark. Talk about all the problems we have, shedding light on those. <laughs> Thanks for a wonderful day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I'll, see, uh, I'll see you on Thursday, Mark. Look forward to that. Yeah. See you, see you on Thursday, Mark. Great. Yeah. Some good new blood. Just yeah, I might come Bob Mark. Thanks. Just know if you come, you're going to end up like co-hosting an event. It just ha- happens. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Sounds but, good. But we'll figure it all out together. All right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. Thank you. Hey.